You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents The team and I are miles from civilization in the dense forest of the Amazon, searching for the fabled Mapinguari. After meeting with witnesses who consistently told us of an ape-like creature that knocks and howls, we're convinced that what we're dealing with is something akin to a Bigfoot. So we're treating it as such. And it seemed as though we finally got something knocking back at us. Hey, knock, knock, knock. Turn up the light, turn up the light. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. In that introduction audio, we heard a clip from the show Finding Bigfoot, where they went down to South America to look for a creature of folklore, myth, and legend, and even modern sightings, the Mapinguari. We talk a lot about cultural filters on Monster Talk. The show Finding Bigfoot was about looking for giant, hairy humanoids. But stories of the Mapinguari have a lot more detail than that. Let's see how well these legends track with Bigfoot lore. The creature is said to be massive and gigantic, maybe even two meters tall. Check. It's supposed to be hairy. Check. It's supposed to have a nasty odor. Check. It's supposed to be a cyclops. What? It's supposed to have backwards-facing feet. No, no, what? It's supposed to have a huge mouth on its belly that it can use to eat prey. Do what now? Do you, do you see what's happened here? The people who want Mapinguari to be a Bigfoot are necessarily ignoring the clearly implausible folkloric elements of the creature. Take the backwards-facing feet. Why would that detail be important? Let's look at a few other creatures that have that same trait. 
The Curupira is another Brazilian folklore creature. It has short red hair, it's a humanoid, and it has backwards-facing feet. The Churel of Indian folklore and her male analog, the ghostly Bahut, also have backwards-facing feet. In the Dominican Republic, La Ciguapa lurks like a succubus in the forest, making men disappear without a trace. And guess what? She, too, has backwards-facing feet. Why? Because in places where tracking down a monster means reading its trackway, nothing would confound a pursuer quite like having the footprints point opposite to the direction of actual travel. So these backwards feet are found in monster lore all over the world, but in particular in monsters which are purely creatures of myth and legend. When the Bigfooters ignore the feature, they're making a kind of euhemerist fallacy. I keep bringing up euhemerism, which is the belief that at the core of every legend there might be some grain of truth, some, some reality. Because euhemerism has a serious impact on how cryptozoology works. And not just cryptozoology. There's a serious filter issue when UFO reporters collect and share all the data around where people saw lights in the sky or creatures on the ground, but when the investigators choose not to report that they were also given angelic messages or other decidedly unphysical aspects of the sighting. But let's not go too far down that rabbit hole. If that was even a rabbit, it could have been a hare. And you know where hares usually lead us. (laughs) Simply put, Mapinguari are not Bigfoot. Slapping the Bigfoot label on one really does require a lot of special pleading and blatantly ignoring many aspects of the legends. But Bigfoot is not the only creature that people have tried to use to identify the Mapinguari. Since the 1990s, one relentless ornithologist has been trying to prove that the Mapinguari is actually a living, giant ground sloth. Let's listen to a clip from the TV show Sightings, where David C. Oren's theory is discussed. It had a large and thick tail, uh, was covered with reddish and blackish hairs, had long claws, a monkey-like face. The fellow was absolutely terrified. Couldn't imagine what he'd seen. Dr. David Orlin is a Harvard-educated research biologist working in South America. He believes that ancient legends about a creature called the Pengue may be based in fact. Two separate places, people were sent running away from what they considered to be this animal. Reports of this thing from all the far corners of the Brazilian Amazon, Venezuela, the Guyanas, uh, Colombia, uh, Peru, Bolivia. Dr. Oren has talked to many people who describe the Mapengue as a creature who walks with backward feet. It stands over six feet tall, weighs more than 500 pounds, and according to one hunter, it is impervious to repeated blasts from a shotgun. Consistently, people report that this creature has a very, very bad smell, and then it affects the nervous system. People describe themselves as being disoriented, uh, intoxicated, and there are three separate cases in which people are stated to have become mute for the rest of their lives after getting a large dose of this. Many of the people who give you these first-hand accounts, they'll say, I didn't believe in this thing either. I thought it was just a legend too, until I saw it. And let me tell you, it's not just a legend. There is a horrible animal out there that terrified of this animal. Although Dr. Oren has not seen the creature for himself, 
Ten years of data collected in the field have led him to believe the Mapengue may be a prehistoric creature thought to be extinct. Suddenly a light went off in my head. I said, my God, this could only be a ground sloth. Well, it's just perfectly extraordinary. Before we dive in with our guest, I've got something else I'd like to mention. It has been 10 years, a real and actual decade, since we started Monster Talk. July 2nd, 2009 was when our first episode was posted. It was really episode four about the Loch Ness Monster and Plesiosaurs featuring Dr. Adam Stewart Smith that, for me, really defined what I wanted to do with the show and gave me my elevator pitch. I've used this pitch for a decade to explain the show to people in a hurry. You know how on TV shows about monsters, they always have the stories and the weirdness take up about 95% of the time, and then occasionally throw in a tiny little nod to skepticism in science? Monster Talk is the inverse of that. We have a tiny portion devoted to the monster stories, and then use the rest of that time to talk about science and critical thinking. Like the Loch Ness Monster, there's no good evidence for a plesiosaur in the lake, despite all the blurry photos. But what can science actually tell us about these prehistoric animals? We brought on a paleontologist who specialized in plesiosaurs to share all kinds of wild info about these animals. Did you know they gave birth in the water, even though they were reptiles? Did you know that they ate stones to help them digest their food, just like birds? Well, I didn't either, but that's the kind of stuff we do on the show. Which brings me to this episode. I wanted to get old school and do the same thing with the Mapinguari that we did with the Loch Ness Monster. For the same reasons that the Mapinguari doesn't match up well with Bigfoot, I also think it doesn't really match well to a giant sloth. But my ignorance of these prehistoric creatures is as vast as the Pampas of Argentina. Following the method which has served us well since the beginning of the show, I went to scientific journals and looked at giant sloth articles until I found an expert whose research has been cited numerous times and had extensive experience with this topic. I reached out to Dr. Richard Farinha, and he graciously agreed to share some of this knowledge with our audience, and there is a lot of it. One more thing. We have a big announcement about Monster Talk's future that we're quite excited about, so please stay tuned after the interview. But for now, let's get down to South America for some Monster Talk. I'd love you to introduce yourself, the... Uh when I was looking for information about uh, giant sloths, your name came up on so many research papers. So you were the number one person I wanted to reach out to. Okay, I, I hope I'll, uh, I live up to the task. Um, my name is Richard Farinha. There's a squiggle above the N, this fancy letter of ours in Spanish called Eñe. Uh, it's not Farinha, it's Farinha. I'm 61. Uh, I'm a paleontologist, of course. I live in Uruguay. Um, what else? I, I like uh, cooking. I like playing football. I like many things. And of course, I love ground sloths with all my heart. <laughs> That's fantastic. Did I also read you're making movies? Uh, well, yes, some, some videos, um, some documentaries. I, I filmed with, with some friends uh, about paleontology, most of them, but also about uh, biomechanics of penalty kick in, in men's football. In, well, well, that uh, game that in the United States you, you call soccer. 
That's right. <laughs> because, because, no, I, I got the prejudice that uh, I, I call football that game in which the ball is played with the feet. Yeah. <laughs> I asked you on to talk about the Mapinguari and some of the legends about it. An ornithologist named David Oren had claimed that he thought that maybe the legend of the Mapinguari was really talking about a giant ground sloth and maybe one that was still alive today. Ah, well. You know, that seems very, very unlikely. But what I realized was, while we may not be able to uh, find a living ground sloth, uh, we should talk about what we know about them, what science has found. And since you're one of the people who's done a lot of really interesting work in, in this animal's research, I thought it would be good to talk to you. That's, that's great. Uh, I mean, uh, about the Mapinguari, what I, I want to say is only that, uh, skeptical as I am, I, I would love with all my heart, I'm wrong. That's how I feel about Bigfoot. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So what, what can by you the way, tell us? Sorry, about... sorry, by the way, um, yeah. Mapinguari is a carnivore which uh, may a, a story that may may come uh, again as a subject as as we continue talking yes yes and it's one of my questions to talk about the the what these animals ate and i saw that you had uh, written about that some that's very interesting so let's let's talk about them in general what are giant sloths uh, uh, megatherium and the megatherids um what were these animals and what did they look like well, they, we, we are more familiar with uh, uh, living species that are very small, uh, about three, four, five kilos uh, in, in size, and they uh, live hanging from the uh, upper branches of, of the trees in the tropical forest in South and Central America. Um, while many of the fossil relatives are far too big to live on, on trees, they they uh, were about some of them. Some of them, of course, were about the size of an elephant, four or five tons. So uh, no no tree will, would have been able to to support them. Of course, I'm so interested in megafauna. The uh, for for them to be that large. Uh, I, I just looking at their skeletons, I, I, they must have had enormous bellies. Where they well, but we don't. Let's don't go to the food yet. Let's. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm so interested in all all these aspects. Um, do we know how fast they were, or is there any way to tell that? Do we have any trackways or anything? There are. Yes, there there are a few trackways, but um, usually usually you don't run. You you usually walk. It's it's the the usual pace. Uh, the usual gait for an animal, you, you seldom run. You only run in, in exceptional locations when you have to, to run for your life. Or if uh, if you eat uh, living things and fast things, you have to run after your food and eventually, of course, for, for your life as well, uh, because you, you have to, to, to feed yourself and, 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 and your younglings. Um, but... Um, the trackways, I know a few of them. I, I've seen uh, that of Megatherium, which is which, which were very impressive in in the southern part of Buenos Aires province in Argentina, a few hundred kilometers from where I live. Um, very impressive, very big things, uh, 90 centimeters, which is about three feet 
in length and uh, 45 centimeters wide and 20 centimeters deep, very, very large feet um, they, they had. And they were assigned, of course, to the largest of them all, which is Megatherium. But there are others, there are others, and very interesting, in North America, they, they found that um, the, uh, people were chasing uh, a sloth, which is a, a very uh, dramatical story told by, by the tracks. Uh, well, and, and there are some others, but um, you don't see them running. Now, uh, if you have a look at the scars, the muscle left on 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 the bones. Uh, well, you must conclude they were very muscular, and they possibly move as fast as uh, modern big animals, which are which are not very fast compared to medium-sized horses, let's say. But um, of course, they wouldn't deserve the name of sloth. They weren't so slothful. I mean, the fossil relatives. Yeah. Yes, compared to the to the modern species. And and what kind of a geographic range are we talking about? How how much of the Americas did they inhabit? They were um, the, their origin is found in southern uh, in the southern part of South America in Patagonia, and little by little, along the million uh, years went by, they reached other parts of South America, also Central America, North America and the Caribbean islands. Um, and that's that's a, a fine story as well. Uh, one of the, the modern species, uh, Bradipus, uh, it seems to be the, the sister group of all the rest of sloths, while uh, Colypus, the other species, um, might have uh, been uh, may have descended from from a branch of the group that colonized North America first and the Antillians then and enter South and Central America from from the islands. And being so distantly related, it is amazing they they uh, have the same habits. They, they live upside down, they are very slow, they chew very slowly their food, they, they live uh, in, in the highest branches. It is amazing. It seems that uh, after the big extinction, which uh, I hope we'll talk later, the only way you can be a sloth is, is, is that, is being small and living upside down in the highest branches of tropical trees. Wow. I, I think I saw on a, a David Attenborough documentary a long time ago that the sloths tended to uh, leave their scat in one place. But that might oh, be. Yes. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. But I, I wouldn't imagine that would be true for ground sloths. I, I don't think so. But of course, we have little uh, evidence, if, if at all. Oh. Yeah, that would be. Uh, yeah, you would also know more about what they ate when you have scat to look at, I guess. Or, or in this case, I guess it would be coprolites. Is that right? I think so. The, yes, there are there are a few in uh, mm, the, no, the the coprolites, the, the feces, the fossil feces. I I know better are those um, left by mylodon. M y l o d o n. In, in a cave in southern Chile, in, in a very cold environment, very cold nowadays, even colder, possibly, 
uh, during the the ice age uh, when when uh, it lived and um, precisely the cold was uh, enough to preserve the hide of the animal and the feces and so the um, the food the, the animal ate could uh, be identified by by uh, the remains the, the the plant remains in in the in those feces oh this is the um the mummified uh, sloth the, the it's exactly a, yes yeah I, I i saw that on a documentary along i like to watch documentaries <laughs> of course the, I, 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 think I, saw, that... I saw part of the high yesterday you know i was in in la plata yesterday and, oh. and I, uh, we had a meeting and i couldn't stop uh, standing in front of it once again for the millionth time and admire the possibility that uh, such an unlikely remain uh, was was preserved yeah that's it's so interesting if i remember correctly when it was found they thought it might have been a relatively recent death but it was actually uh yeah, quite yeah. a bit more but back uh, my lodon my was was um uh thought to be alive so they, they it was wanted dead or alive you know um yeah it was, it was a very interesting story back in the uh, late 19th century uh, early 20th century over one century ago yeah and i think that one's named after darwin as well right meladon darwin i i think Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but uh, this, this was considered a different species be because it was alive. It was possibly alive. It was even named as a different species. But ah. uh, eventually, yeah, yeah. Eventually, uh, they they uh, realized that uh, that was only a dream, just like the Mapinguari. Yeah, I think there was also a uh, there was one uh, sloth found mummified in uh, maybe New Mexico. In North America as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. The Shasta ground sloth. The Shasta ground sloth. Yes, Northrotherium shastensis. Yeah. yeah, I'll put a I'll put a link to some of these uh, in in our show notes so listeners can go see the sort of conditions where these were found. It's very interesting. Um, so they had quite a big range, and um, and we how and, and they lived uh, for a pretty broad uh, amount of time. And I guess oh, some yes. of them, I mean, the small ones, the small sloths. Uh, well, so as far as how these things are related, I, we've talked about this a few times on the show. Um, there's these sort of um, uh, comparative anatomy that's used in, in geological records and also now DNA and molecular analysis to kind of determine, you know, how these different species are connected to each other. Uh, where where does the giant sloth, uh, how is it related to the sloths that are alive today? Uh, well, uh, one of them, uh, Bradipus, uh, is very distantly related to to all the others. It seems a, a branch or a group that lived um, in in South America for the last thirty something million years, while the other, Colypus, um, was the, that one that I mentioned that must have derived from from animals that colonized North American first, the Antillean then, and even then from, from the Antillean, they colonized South America and Central America. So have, have we, um, or has anyone done the, like mapping the genome? Well, actually there's 
only a few of this, uh, the species of the uh, fossil extinct sloth that uh, whose, whose uh, DNA was was found. Um, DNA can be found only up, up to now, at least, in um, fossils that are not too old, only um, a few thousand or tens or thousand years. And the group, of course, has a much longer history of uh, 30-something million years. So most of these laws, we can surmise their um, their position in, in the phylogenetic tree by studying their anatomy, their morphology, like like in the old day. Sure, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, I... I guess it's, let's talk a little bit about their food. We, what, what did their intention look? What did their teeth look like? Uh, do we, you know, what do we know about their their stomach contents, that sort of thing? I guess we only have a few samples of that. Uh, very little. Um, mostly, we, paleontolo- we, we paleontologists love teeth, you know. Uh, teeth are uh, made of a very hard tissues, so they, they are very well preserved, and they've got plenty of information about the diet in, in, of extinct animals once you, you compare their form with modern species. Now, xenathrans lack enamel, so this is a difficulty, and also they are very weird. They, their morphology is very special, very peculiar, and in many ways, you, you can't um, identify uh, the same features as in, in modern um, animals you, you study. I mean, cows, horses on the one hand, and dogs and cats on the other. Um, so in many ways, we are still trying to figure out the way they chew the, the food that they ate. Most of them are traditionally... Uh, recognized, identified as herbivores, but there was a crazy South American paleontology that proposed that at least one of the species could have been a bit more, uh, could have had a more varied diet than previously supposed. And that guy, that guy is, is talking right now. Let's talk about that. I read, I read your uh, the paper uh, you you had two papers that I thought were really interesting they were, uh, they may have been controversial for you I don't know well science science is about controversy isn't it yeah yeah if, if it's not controversial it is just another piece of knowledge um, I like um, there are scientists of all sorts and all of us are important in the way that we we contribute with our effort, enthusiasm and knowledge to uh, building the tree of life as, as we know it. Um, so you need someone who invent fire and you need someone to uh, is uh, near the fire when the other goes away to invent something else. Uh, but of course, I, I, I like um, being controversial more than other scientists, and it's just a, a preference, a personal preference with nothing special in it. And uh, well, yes, but uh, that led me to to propose that uh, Megatherium, based on uh, thermodynamical uh, aspects of of the of the ecology of that megafauna. 
and on some uh, morphological features of that animal as well that could have uh, been uh, more uh, carnivore, more uh, animalivorous than previously thought. Yeah, so specifically, I believe you talked about the possibility that the, uh, the megatherium could have uh, flipped over uh, glyptodonts, those giant armored herbivores that look kind of like uh, armadillos, right? And, yes, of course. Uh, Glyptodonts the... are, are relatives, actually. They are xenanthrans as well. This group that um, includes uh, nowadays armadillos, anteaters, and tree sloths, as, and as fossils, ground sloths and glyptodonts. The, the armadillos are very interesting to me because they, oh, they're, yeah. they're sort of an invasive species uh, into my home state. When I was a child, we never saw them. And now they're kind of competing. I think they must be in the same sort of ecological niche as the uh, opossum because they're, they, they seem to uh, have the same habitat. And uh, uh, they, 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 of course, neither of them fare very well on the roads. That's where I see them. But, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. but the, the glyptodont is, uh, was enormous. And uh, it must have been very delicious because... It doesn't seem like you would need to build that much armor if you taste it bad, right? <laughs> yeah, very possibly, yes. I, I'm sorry I'm not old enough to have tasted <laughs> them. Um, but um, yes, um, uh, what we studied is that um, on the one hand, there were too many herbivore species for the grass that might have um, been present in during the Ice Age in the region where uh, here in Uruguay, uh, Buenos Aires province in Argentina, southern Brazil, in this, in this region that uh, the megafauna was at its uh, highest splendor. Um, and, and the environment must have been a bit colder and somewhat uh, drier than today and therefore uh, it is um, the productivity, the, the grass, the available grass must have been much less than nowadays. And, um, and despite of that, there were many, many, many species of giant animals, up to 12 sometimes, in, not, in, in the, in, not in the region, but in the same site, you find up to 12 giant species uh, weighing over one ton. Wow. Uh, yes, uh, this, is, this is weird. And again, uh, it seems there were too few carnivores. Um, to be fed with this impressive amount of meat that was available under the form of, of the mega herbivores. Um, so I, I made some calculations and um, it, it, it wasn't unlikely that uh, uh, one of the previously thought as uh, uh, quiet herbivores uh, quite vegetarians, let's say, could have had a more aggressive habits and, and uh, must have taken advantage of, of this uh, resource that's, that was available, uh, meat. Um, it is like in, in these detective stories, you know, in, in Poirot's and Agatha Christie's, uh, you have to identify the murderer. Uh, I imagine Poirot uh, saying to the glyptodon, it was you, with, of course, with <laughs> French, French accent. Uh, 
but the glitterant was too stupid to to be a hunter you know must have answered uh, me yeah. um, so because the brain of the glitterant is the size of of the brain of a, of a big dog and it was an animal that could have weight uh, up to two tons so uh, the, you you need you need more brain to to hunt that uh, what's needed for selecting a patch of, of grass and I, I, I must emphasize, because there, there might be many vegetarians hearing this program, that this is valid for species, not for preferences inside one species, in this case, Homo sapiens. So I'm not insulting vegetarians, human vegetarians. Well, <laughs> but you also you have, uh, there's, there's lots of animals that most people think of as being vegetarian that will use opportunities to eat meat um. absolutely oh no that's that's a fact uh, yeah. there's, there's a, a nice paper by by some Chilean uh, authors called uh, why animals eat what they should not and well this is valid for many humans as well but um, yes uh, given the chance uh, all of us um, can eat something richer in in protein. Uh, so, even even anteaters, which lack teeth, they they are they are described to to um, lick uh, meat, and and the description says that they they do that with great relish. And I'm <laughs> quoting. Yeah, I'm quoting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's. Yeah, I guess they're getting some nutrition out of it. I'm sure it's not just the flavor. Um. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars, eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't Understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. But the 
the let's talk about the physical properties that might support this hypothesis. I, the first thing I think about is the incredible claws on the on the megatherium. Um, yeah, like like knives. Some of them are you know like daggers, uh, about twenty centimeters. You you make the math and tell your audience how many inches are, are those, say seven inches or something long, and flatten laterally uh, the, the the form the form of, of a knife the form of, of something you uh, want to use to penetrate tissues to make an aggressive use of, of, of that and this is complemented by the anatomy of the forearm which uh, they, they had a very short olecranon process i mean the the elbow where where the tricep muscles that that uh, is useful for uh, stretching your forearm, you know, uh, it is very short, which is um, more related to speed in in that movement than uh, it is related to to force. Um, let me explain. Armadillos that dig, they've got a very long olecranon process. Some of them even it is longer than the rest of the forearm. Which which makes uh, makes up uh, a very strong lever for the muscles. It's, it is like in in your car. This is the the first gear. If you've got a manual car, of course, not an automatic one. Uh, and and the um, anatomy of Megatherium's forearm is that of uh, something designed to move very fast. So you tell me what. A fast knife is useful for right. <laughs> I mean, it could be for it could be defense, but what were their predators? Uh, well, this is a, a four-ton animal, um, yeah. the largest, uh, very well-known predator is Smilodon, which is uh, tenfold smaller. Yeah, uh, it's not a, a real threat to to the Megatherium. Um, it is uh, unlikely Megatherium were handed down massively. I mean, of course, in some cases it is, of course, possible. But uh, as as a rule, you you don't try to hunt some something that is ten times bigger than you are. Right. No, I don't. Unless <laughs> unless you you've got uh, firearms, of course. Right. Well, that and those were very rare back then. What? Very. Yeah, very. <laughs> To say the least. <laughs> do do we? I guess what would be your smoking gun, though? Speaking of firearms, if you wanted to prove this hypothesis, I mean, assuming you're not well, going to find it, a tree fell on a uh, megatherium that was eating a glyptodont, I, uh, you, you, what would you be looking for? I, I, I'm skeptical about um, uh, any scientific uh, issue ever have. It's uh, smoking definitely uh, solving gun. Um, there are many, many evidence in favor of that, and this is the way we conceive. But uh, in science, you know, uh, uh, hypotheses are, are, are not permanent things. They are very ephemeral. Uh, what is known today will be... Uh, 
considering under a very different light tomorrow or the day after tomorrow or next week. Uh, even the brightest mind of science, like uh, Sir Isaac Newton, uh, was corrected a few centuries after the, they, they had died uh, about, about the, the way they, they conceived the universe. So um, I, I don't think there will ever be a smoking gun. There are evidences, there are pieces of evidence in favor of the hypothesis and others that uh, do not, um, that are not very well explained by that hypothesis. And this is the way we, we work in, in science. Exactly. I, we, I like to say that all scientific fact is provisional. You know, absolutely. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I, I like to say they're like little candles you you light and um, they they eventually they disappear, but they they orient you in, in your way. Yeah, it, it's, it sounds more poetic in Spanish, you know, I bet. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, Spanish is more poetic than English, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it sure sounds like it. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Megatherium, wh where did they live? Like, wh I know you've talked a little bit about the sort of climate, but that climate must have changed because they lived for a long, long time ge geologically. But, but like, what were there? Do we know where they did they build nests? Well, Megatherium americanum, the largest species uh, described, lived in the late Pleistocene during the, the Ice Age that uh, became very popular after the, the cartoons, the films. I, I, I love myself, even though many of the things are paleontologically wrong, like uh, the uh, incisors in, in Sid's uh, mouth, um, Xenarthran's lack incisors, but uh, of course uh, the animal looks uh, very cute the way the way it was depicted. Um, in the, the Ice Age here in, in this part of South America, uh, the consequence was that, that the, um, this, this water that um, forms, the, that makes up the, the ice, um, was uh, of course kidnapped from from the environment, so the environment was drier, um, and therefore the forests weren't so widespread as they are today in in South America, um, especially in this region, which is not very forested even today. Naturally, uh, forests in this part of the world are, are very scarce. Um, they they might might have lived in in open environment in in uh, prairies or this this sort of things or you know uh, very uh, very short grass uh, with wide horizons. Do we, do we know if they they were solitary or if they traveled in, in kind of packs? Mm. Or? Well, this the site we are working on. Um, and some others, some of the species at least might have had some some uh, social behavior. Yes, which is which is normal among among large animals. Elephants are, uh, are, are social, and in, in Africa it is very well studied among among uh, bovids. Uh, the smaller antelopes are solitary 
while the largest, or I mean, the, the buffalo, the African buffalo, uh, are, are social. They, they live in, in big herds. Uh, and of course, we we always see the, these documentaries in in uh, the African savanna, uh, the wild beast uh, going through the Mara River in in very large numbers and being hunted by crocodiles. And uh, and I think there must be more National Geographic photographers than a wild beast. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> the the uh, the megatherium's eyes. Did, did they have stereo vision? Do we think? I uh, yes yes uh, to some extent. This hasn't been properly studied, but some some uh, incidental observations we made. Uh, the, the the eyes were rather yes uh, close to each other, and possibly they had a binocular um, sight. Yes. Interesting. And yeah. have they found any records of their brain? So, I mean, I know that there's been some, in some animals, there's been some interesting things where they found, you know, they like a casting of the brain and it gave them a little bit of insight into, you know, something about the cognition. We we studied the brains of some sloths, but not of Megatherium. No, no, we haven't published that, uh, the digital endocranial. There are some, some uh, work about that. And it seems they they were not as stupid as glyptodonts. Let's well, say. Well, there's that. <laughs> yeah, that's something. That's it, something. I was thinking along. You know, sometimes you can tell from the shape of the brain how much, uh, how and powerful the was the nose. You know, like how, how strong was their sense of smell, that sort of thing, or how much they, did they hunt well, with their nose? By the way, glyptodonts, which we studied, they they have a, they must have had a very strong sense of smell. And their cerebellar uh, were very big, so the, the equilibrium must have been very important for, for them. But um, in, in Megatherium, we, we haven't studied that in, in, in that detail. But um, I, I take advantage of inviting whoever wants. I, I, uh, there are many, many uh, PhD thesis to be written on on the megafauna and ground sloth in particular. That's good. I, I, I we have a lot of young listeners who are always you know asking what they could please, do. Please please come over. Please yeah. come over. <laughs> They're such interesting, just amazing looking animals. I always, although I, I don't know what you would call it. You know how when you go to some museums they have. The dinosaurs seem to be in the same sort of pose, no matter what museum you go to. The, the megatheriums always pose like it's uh, on its back legs, reared up. I, you know, I don't, did it, was it a quadruped? I assumed it was a quadruped, but. Well, the tracks, uh, this, this trackway has 37 uh, tracks, and most of them uh, are from, from the hind feet. Only a few uh, from from uh, the the four feet. Really? It seems they they must have been um, now and then they, they could walk on 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 bipedally, but also quadruped like, like gorillas. Yeah, know? gorilla gorilla could be could be a good um, a good example a good um, source of inspiration of, of the way they they walked. That is fascinating. I, I've just 
I'm just trying to imagine walking through the forest or walking through the plains or grasses and seeing something that big walking on its hind legs. That must have been something. Must have been yeah. something. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Wow. I well, hope I hope they, they invent the time tunnel soon enough before I <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Well, it's funny to me, you know, everybody's dinosaurs, dinosaurs, but the the mammal megafauna was amazing and I don't think there's been enough I mean there's been some good representation. You know, I, I guess we, we can understand them better because they are mammals. They they are uh, more closely related to to many animals that live today. The ecology, um, the environment in which they lived, uh, must have been more similar to some uh, present day. Uh, biomes or environments or ecosystems uh, so we can understand them better dinosaurs are far away in time they were very different the world the world was was much different during the mesozoic there was no ice at sea level in the whole planet are ah, you wanted climatic change there you have climatic change yeah yeah it was quite different but, Quite different. I, I wonder what the atmosphere was like too. I think uh, there, there's there's so many times in in the history of the world when uh, the atmosphere was radically different. I'm thinking about you know when you get these um, huge arthropods. You know. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what a meter well, long. Or along more, you know. along the million years, you yeah. uh, you see everything. Everything unlikely actually happens yeah <laughs> we, time time given uh, yeah yeah evolution will make weird things it's it's uh, it, I, it is very strange i did speaking of uh, this is this will sound random but, but going back to glyptodonts i've always wondered this um do you did they did their anatomy allow them to roll up in a ball the way that armadillos can sort of roll up no not not so much not okay. not the big ones Whose skeletons we yeah. we know well? Uh, no, not at all. Uh, I, I was just wondering, from a defensive perspective, did did they just squat down to the ground? Or, you know, or did they fight back? They, I don't know what they did. They they might have fought back, yes, because some some of the species of glyptodons have very long and powerful tails made of bones, covered with with bones, and some of them are reconstructed even with with spikes. On, on the tip of the tail, and we calculated, we calculated the the, um, the energy delivered by one of those blows with with the with the tail, taking into account the amount of muscle involved and so on, and it must have been something devastating. We calculated it was uh, three thousand joules, which means an object of thirty kilos falling from ten meters. Wow. Uh, must have been something very strong. You would not want to be hit by that. <laughs> you, don't, you, you better stay away from that, yes. So let's talk about their departure, their extinction. What, 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 do we, what happened? At the end of the Pleistocene, uh, many very large species disappeared from uh, nearly everywhere in the world. The only place in which we've got very large uh, giant animals is uh, Africa nowadays, and well, and some some uh, places in in Asia as well, 
in India and uh, surrounding regions. Um, all the extinctions are associated very well with the time of human arrival. So we are likely to be blamed for that, our own species, Homo sapiens. Um, also climatic change, but uh, for instance, in, in Australia, there was uh, extinction of the uh, megafauna there long before uh, the, there was a, a major climatic change at the end of the Pleistocene. And of course, conveniently close to the arrival of human beings in in in, in that uh, in that part of the world. Um, what was lacking here in South America, or is lacking to a great extent, is the direct evidence of uh, megafauna having been uh, hunted by uh, or processed by by humans. And we are we are uh, we have. We were lucky enough to to find uh, a site in which there are strong evidence of uh, human megafauna interactions. It is called Arroyo del Vizcaino. I might want to write it down later so you can uh, reproduce it in, in written way. Uh, in yeah, written I, I, way. I've got it. Uh, I've got the Royal Society publishing version of the article. I'll put in the show notes. We we've got. Um, um, uh, website as well. We we I like to encourage your uh, your audience to to visit. It's arroyo del vizcaino dot org. So please go there. The website is is uh, very cool. Was made by someone who knows a lot, Martin Batallés and Gabriela Costoya. They um, they are web designers, and he essentially Martin uh, wanted to become a paleontologist, and, and he's he's working with us. Uh, so we we are very lucky he he joined us in in, in our team. Well, in in that site, the, uh, it is it is impressive. The um, in in the bottom of a lagoon, you. Uh, Thousands of giant bones were found during a, a severe drought in 1997. Uh, and since then, we've already collected 1,700 bones, uh, very large bones, and there are thousands and thousands still to be extracted because we don't even know how um, far the, the fossiliferous layer goes uh, beneath the, the more modern sediments. And uh, quite a few of them, 60, 70, we, we studied, have uh, cut marks, marks that have all the features uh, described in the literature as um, those done by, by human beings, by, by tools. Um, um, again, uh, another interesting thing is that uh, the official story goes that uh, humans reached the Americas about 15,000 uh, years ago, um, and this site is 30, is, is twice as old, 30,000 years old. So um, it, is, it, it was a, a, a big discovery, a, a big finding, and we were lucky enough to, to, to be involved in, in that. Yeah, that's really interesting. So um, I, I how has the 
community responded uh, to your paper? Has there been a lot of pushback on the aging? Well, as usual, some uh, skeptical, some uh, more eager to accept the evidence we give. But of course, this is science we have to discuss. Actually, uh, something I, I must emphasize is that um, the person that criticizes you is your best collaborator because that person points out at details that you, in your enthusiasm, uh, had overlooked. Uh, I got a friend, um, Gustavo Politis, an Argentinian archaeology. He's, he's a close friend of mine, and he's very skeptical. Um, so when he comments the weaknesses of our um, approach, uh, I'm sure he's not doing that because he hates me, because he's my friend. We are very fond of each other. <laughs> we meet in the summer with all with our families. Uh, um, so I know he is pointing out at something that hasn't been done in the proper way. So we we orient uh, endeavor to such uh, aspects that uh, were possibly overlooked in in the wake of our enthusiasm. So it's not even the critic is a collaborator. It's the critic is a, a, a an especially important collaborator. Absolutely, the most important, I, I'd say. Of course, if uh, this is a person that criticizes your work, if they criticize, say, my uh, hairstyle, well, I, your audience is fortunate enough not to see me because my <laughs> hairstyle is a mess. Well, uh, I would say, well, you're right, but that has nothing to do with what we, we are talking about in terms of science, in terms of interpretation of facts. We, we find that that's a really great attitude. Uh, uh, and also, I envy your hair. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I get involved, but uh, slowly. So, well, I, I apparently I'm on the fast track. Uh, <laughs> something terrible happened. <laughs> I, see, I see your picture here wearing a hat. Exactly. I love hats. That, that, that speaks volumes. I, you know, I liked hats before, uh, but really? but now they actually help keep me from being sunburned. So that's nice. Okay. <laughs> so, so is there anything else about Giant Sloss that I have failed to ask that you'd like to share with the audience? A uh, million and million, um, uh, a lot of things. Um, but um, I I prefer people to to be a bit hungry, you know, and that uh, they are enthusiastic enough after we we have talked about them for them to to look after the to look for for more by themselves. Of course, I'm available for further consultations whenever they want. In in that website, I I told they they can communicate with. Ah, I'm sorry, the. Uh, that website is in Spanish and English, but the Spanish part is is uh, more developed. Uh, my my fault. I'm sorry. Well, that's okay but, though. I, I see it. They can also use Google Translate if they need to. Uh, yes, sometimes translations are you know. Uh, well, there's that <laughs> about what you intended, but anyway, they they are very useful. Of course, I I wouldn't deny that. It is a good looking um, site. At, at the web page, they they have the. Um, uh, email addresses to to write to us if, if they want so we we are we try to 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 answer as much as possible all the questions we 
we are we are made. So we are at the orders of your orders and, and the orders of, of uh, your your audience. Well, I have I'll have both the Spanish and the English versions in the show notes linked. Okay, so that's fantastic. Well, wow. Thank you so much for talking to us about giant sloths today. Oh, no, quite on the contrary. I, I'm grateful. I am I, delighted to, to talk about that. Uh, and uh, thank you very much for having thought of, of me and, and us in general to, to talk about grand sloths. No problem. I, this has been absolutely great. I, I've learned so much, and I'm sure the listeners will too. So now we have to ask the maybe the most important question. <laughs> I know. <laughs> What is your favorite monster? Of, of course, I, I have to answer Megatherium. <laughs> uh, consider monsters in the uh, back in, in the 19th century. It was the the term to describe uh, those animals, the, the megafauna. Um, but um, I, I say that. Uh, Hereford livestock is what I love most nowadays. The Hereford? Yes, I'm like, a big, I'm a big carnivore myself. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so I, my grandfather uh, has uh, has cattle. So as soon as you said really? that, I was like, wait, are you talking about the cows? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm talking about the cows. Uh, in the country I live, it's, it's only three and a half million people in Uruguay. You know. And despite of that, there are 12 million cows. Wow. Oh, yes. That's a lot and of cows. Despite, despite my efforts to diminish that population, <laughs> they, they, are, they are faring very well, I guess. Uh, is, is, how, how are they, this is a little off topic, but uh, how are they prepared there? Oh, barbecue, of course. This is a most traditional way. Yeah, uh, okay. So uh, wood fire mm, carefully you pass the cinders under the uh, a grill and and they are cooked slowly and uh, could be very delicious and uh, I'm I'm a proud cook myself so uh, when when we go to to the camp in to to, to doing field work uh, I cook Wow. This, is, this, is, this is something I don't delegate, you know. Yeah. I, I prepare barbecue every day. Uh, even for vegetarians, I prepare, you know, vegetables or, yeah. or cheese or whatever. But for others that, uh, that, are, that eat meat, I, I prepare this hair with uh, a lot of care. Wow. I, 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 proudly, I proudly state <laughs> that sounds like, I mean, I, I know we have listeners who are vegetarians, but that, close your ears because I, that sounds amazing. <laughs> you are, you're warmly invited to join us. You, it's heavy work, you know, it's. No, I'm uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of physical exertion, but uh, when you eat, uh, you, you learn that your prayers uh, have, have been heard. Well, Thank you so much for talking to me. This was fascinating. Oh, no, not at all. Thank you. Thank you. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and you just heard an interview with Dr. Richard Farina discussing the amazing things scientific researchers have learned about giant ground sloths. Please check out the website of Dr. Farina's team. I've put a link to that in the show notes. 
While preparing this show, I was reminded by my daughter, Sophia, that I was supposed to ask Richard about something she'd run across online. I sent off her question and he replied. So here's that exchange, which I found quite interesting. I heard on the internet that ground sloths were seed dispersers for avocados, but after they went extinct that humans are responsible for keeping these plants around. Is that true? Along the history, ground sloths must have eaten all sorts of things, actually. As you know, I propose that uh, Megatherium could have been uh, an omnivore and must have eaten uh, some amount of flesh. But um, what your daughter, a very clever person, of course, was discussing is uh, what's uh, called the syndrome of dispersion by mega herbivores. Actually, uh, it was it was originally proposed for gonfotheres for for proboscideans, but um, uh, all all megafaunal species uh, must have uh, been involved in that. There are, according to the authors, there are some fruits that have lost their dispersers. Um, instead of having an animal that ate them and um, which favored the um, germination after, after they, they were dropped, they are now in, in the way of being extinct in, along the years because they, they lacked the, that, that animal. And there are some people that propose that humans must uh, take over and disperse the plants. Actually, the, um, one of the researchers, one of the authors, uh, made the experiment himself and he ate uh, those um, seeds, big seeds, uh, several times, if you understand what I mean. Um, and those those um, seeds were more prone to to germinate than others that uh, didn't have the same treatment. That sounds like an uncomfortable way to test a hypothesis, but I have to admire the scientist's dedication. And I appreciate Dr. Farina giving us the digest version of the story. I can't help but think of all the jokes about papers and passing grades had this been a student project. A link to that paper about seed dispersion by megafauna, including giant sloths, glyptodonts, and gomphotheres, will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. And in case you weren't familiar with them, gomphotheres were giant elephant-like creatures that really reminded me of the behemoth creature in the new Godzilla movie. When I looked it up, I was surprised to find that according to a popular fan site, the creature in the Godzilla movie, King of the Monsters, is actually a giant hairy monster with a mouth in its stomach. I don't recall seeing a mouth in its stomach, but in the novelization of the movie, they explicitly state that this creature is, in fact, the Mapinguari. How about that? I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Monster Talk's been an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. This is our last episode created in partnership with Skeptic and we are grateful for their support of the past decade. Monster Talk will continue, and I will be working with Skeptics Webmaster, William Bull, who's been handling all the hard work of getting these episodes out to you since we first partnered up years ago. I especially want to thank William for his labor, and for Daniel Loxton for reaching out to us with the idea of partnering in the first place. Thanks to Pat Lindsay, who was always helpful to us at the amazing meeting conferences and who is a delight to work with. 
and thanks to Michael Shermer for agreeing to the partnership. I was never quite clear as to whether he listened to our show, but he never interfered editorial in any way, and that made it a fantastic way to grow our audience. As a brand, I'm very proud of all of our Monster Talk content. The decision to become independent was difficult, but for a variety of business reasons, necessary. I will be working closely with Skeptic to attempt to transition the feed as smoothly as possible once we've got all the hosting arrangements set up. There could be a short interruption while we get that grunt work done, but just stay tuned. This move will not affect our Patreon feed because Patreon's its own hosting platform. A significant reason for this change is that I'm turning the show into a for-profit business. My main goal for this show has always been, and always will be, to spread critical thinking while also celebrating and giving deep consideration to the thousands of kinds of monsters that people experience, imagine, fear, and believe in. In the near future, we'll be taking on advertisers, and I'm still trying to make some decisions around whether to join into one of the commercial podcast networks who've already reached out to us, or to maintain control of the ads myself to ensure they stay entirely consistent with our show's values. This is an important announcement for our Patreon supporters. The Patreon feed has switched to a monthly tiered model, not per episode. As always, the Patreon feed will be advertisement-free and contain extended cuts of the interviews and no censoring of our language. If you can't stand advertising, our lowest tier is only a dollar a month for an ad-free extended-length experience. We've set up some cool tiers, and we're working on bringing in merchandise and new branding. And our tiers have cool names like Shadow Person, Squatches, Champs, and more. Hop on over to patreon.com forward slash monster talk to check that out. But if you want to continue to enjoy the free version of the show, it will still be here for you. And the ads will be for products that we legitimately enjoy. I don't know what those are going to be yet, but I can tell you that I already love things like audiobooks and online training. And hopefully we can find great products that you'll enjoy too. So that's the plan. I hope you'll stick with us through any hiccups as we get the new feed set up. It's going to be the same great content with a small addition of some advertising so that we can fund our ambitious plans. Monster House LLC. Wish us luck. Oh, wait, we're skeptics. We don't wish. Oh, oh, we also don't luck. We work hard and we do our best and we hope that's enough. And I think with your support, it will be. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you, as always, for listening. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. Is that true? Is that true? Is that true? Is it true? Is it? No, is it? Is it true? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs>